You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. If you have a Bible with you today, I'd love for you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7. This is 1 to 23. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. There should be some in the seats just in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, just consider that a gift from us. Uh, Again, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 1 to 23. Um, If you want to stand with me for reading of God's word. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles their father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions you've handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And when he said to them, Then you are without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of the person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within a person, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, good morning. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, uh, that's me. That English guy that just walked off, his name is Luke Hall. And I'm saying this here because I said it in the first service. It was an ad lib. But, uh, he, uh, you know, we continue to see the Lord bring people in here off the street that are gifted, that are qualified and called to, to do ministry here. And I think, we, I think we would be remiss if we ever... Um, stopped recognizing that when it happens or stopped making that a big deal or, or thanking God for doing that because we're getting so many people now. It's, it's awesome. He's one of them. And I told him this morning, I said, man, I asked him, I said, how much like being on a stage have you done? And he said, a little bit till I was 16 and then I stopped for a long time. And I hope I'm not telling his story for him, but I'm going to. And, uh, and anyway, came back here and he said the first time he hosted here was one of the first times he had been back on stage in a long time. And I told him, I said, man, you're, you're so comfortable. They're so natural up there. So anyway, I say all that to say I'm encouraged by that. I hope that you are. Um, and 
That's it. So we'll, we'll move on. If you are a guest with us this morning, we want to thank you for, for choosing us, for choosing to come here and worship with us this morning. Our hope always is that we will uh, make much of Christ. And, and through that, you'll want to stay here, join us in membership, and link arms with us as we move forward making the gospel unignorable in our community. So as Luke told us, we're continuing through the book of Mark. We're about halfway through. I recognized the other day, and I thought, man, we've made some, some pretty good ground. And then I realized that's because we're about halfway through the year already. It's, <laughs> we're 50% of on the way to 2024, so it's just going away. The older I get, the faster time goes. So today we'll be in chapter 7, like we said earlier. So if you haven't turned there in your Bibles, go ahead and do that. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here this morning, Lord, to, to worship you through song, to open the scriptures, uh, to dig into them, Lord, and see what it is that you have for us today. God, I pray that hearts and eyes would be open, they'd be focused this morning, God, that your spirit may do the work that you intend to do today. God, I pray that, uh, that we would leave here different than we came in, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would know that you are with us always, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I live out, I've told you guys this before, but I live out in Huffman, and I love, I love the neighborhood that I live in. One of the things that, that I really love about it is uh, the drive-in, like from the road. Uh, you come in, and there's like some trees and stuff, and then you, one of the first things I noticed about the neighborhood when I moved there was that you drive in on this particular road, and every yard is beautiful. They're all manicured well. The, the paint on the homes looks like it's always new. Um, a new thing for me when I moved out there was noticing that everyone's driveways were white. They looked like new concrete, and that's because they pressure washed them regularly. And I was like, wow, that's, that's interesting. I had never done that before. And, and because of that, I have developed a healthy obsession with, with my grass and with the outer parts of my home uh, because I don't want to be the sore thumb on the block and have the neighbor on both sides of me looking really good, and then people are wondering what's wrong with me because I can't take care of mine. So I spend, you know, a lot of time working out there. I spend a lot of time thinking about working out there and planning ways to get better. And I cut the grass on, on Friday, and it was the first cut of the year that wasn't riddled with weeds. It was actually good grass that had come up from the fertilizer that I'd put down several months ago right before the rain and all the perfect ways you're supposed to do it. And it, when that happens, the front part of my yard looks like a carpet. And I'm obsessed with it. I told, my wife will tell you, we were driving home. We saw some friends Friday night. Driving home, it's about 1130 or whatever it was. It was dark. And my, my house is on a corner lot. And as soon as my headlights hit the ground, I said, man, that grass looks good. You know, and I do this all, all the time over and over again. Uh, we, we argue all the time because all of my projects I want to do on the outside of the home and all of her projects she wants to do inside. And it's, it's a mindset that I have. And a lot of it is rooted in the fact that I want things to be beautiful on the outside. I want people to drive by and their immediate perception of me as the man of the house is that I take really good care of my stuff. And, and I say that as a segue into the idea that I think our world, that, that's just a small example of a larger thing that goes on in the world around us. We live in a world that is committed to making sure everything looks great and well put together from the outside, whether it's what we wear, what we drive, et cetera, et cetera, on, on, and on. Uh, we're constantly working to ensure that we're projecting the best version of ourselves and our family. And frankly, social media has increased this proclivity quite a bit. It's made it really easy. Like it's super easy to, you know, gather all my kids up, tell them to stop crying for a second, take a selfie and put it out there so people will go, man, I wish I had that family. 
And I'm like, come over, dude. Just come over and sit for a few hours, and you'll see that that's not the picture. And the reason I'm saying that is this is not something that we see in our world today, but quite often we, we find that same pursuit in the church among believers. We find that same desire to project a walk with Christ that's well put together, even though we all know that most of us are going through figuring this thing out day by day as we grow and we become more like him. And in fact, what happens is that pursuit of looking as though we have everything together in our walk with Christ oftentimes will lead people into the sin of legalism. And, and what, we, what I've read about legalism and what I think we would all find to be true in our own lives is that's one of the first sinful bends that new believers can begin to fall into. Charles Spurgeon says this about it. He said, beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian because we are all born legalists. That, that's, in a lot of ways, the very first thing that we start trying to control when we begin to follow Christ. And the reason I bring that up is because this is what we're seeing at the first part of our text this morning. When we pick back up here in Mark chapter 7, we're jumping right into an account of Jesus confronting the Pharisees about their legalistic views regarding the behavior of Jesus' disciples. And they're trying to... They're trying to condemn them, condemn the disciples because they're not using the man-made traditions of the Jewish culture at the time. And through doing that, they're also working on trying to discredit Jesus' ministry through that concept. So um, having said that, let me jump right in. I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 7, and then we'll get going. Starting in verse 1, now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So there's a bit of a contrast here between where Court left off last week at the end of chapter 6 and where we're jumping in here at the beginning of chapter 7. Back up just a little bit into the end of chapter 6, you see that Jesus is surrounded by the crowds who we've talked about extensively as we've gone through the book of Mark. And those crowds in them are many people who are sick, who are seeking healing, who believe that Jesus can heal them. And there's all of this celebration and awe at the things that he's been doing among the people. Then we jump directly into chapter 7. We see Pharisees and scribes standing before him questioning the disciples. And, and what, what's happening here is you're, we're standing right at the beginning of a shift in Mark's narrative. Something that's fixing to change from recounting that awe and celebra celebration of Jesus' supernatural works among the people. And now we're going to start seeing the religious leaders of the day working to discredit Jesus among those same people. And this would be an important work for them. It would be important that they were able to discredit him because they need the support of the people when they would eventually go and try to crucify him. And spoiler alert, they're going to get that support. It's going to happen as we push on through the book. The Pharisees and scribes confronting Jesus here in the text had been sent there by other leaders in the church specifically for this purpose. So word had begun to spread about the amazing works being done by Jesus. And these guys were sent on about a 90-mile journey through rough terrain to come here and have this confrontation. 
So because of that, it goes without saying that they were pretty motivated to come and do this. There was quite the motivation among them to come and do it. And when they arrived there, their line of questioning is about the disciples eating without washing their hands, which at face value seems like a fairly reasonable question if you just take it for, for what it's worth in the Scripture, especially for us as we're coming out of a pandemic. I think I read last week that the pandemic's finally over officially, so thank you, WHO, or whoever it was that flipped that switch. But we're coming out of that, and during the pandemic, a lot of us really learned how to wash our hands well, especially during the early months. I remember I, I, I worked for ExxonMobil uh, in my day job, and uh, we were deemed an essential business or whatever because we had to keep whatever was running, we had to do that. And... Uh, so I was there the whole time. I never went through the work from home thing and none of that. I was at the site the whole time. And, and we were really, really pressured about washing our hands, whether it's in the faucet or whatever, or the, one, the thing that was really big was the hand sanitizer. We had hand sanitizer everywhere. And like in the first three weeks, we went through all of it, all the Purell. And we, so we start looking, trying to find more, and there's nothing out there. And this is not just in where I'm at. It's corporate. It's all over the entire company. We can't find hand sanitizer. So what they ended up doing was go into the Baton Rouge chemical plant and they converted one of the units there. They changed its process and they started making hand sanitizer. And they sold this stuff into market, but the first amount, however much it was that came off, they sent out into the company for the guys. And I remember this flatbed truck pulling up one day, driver had a mask on, I can still see him. He pulls up, he's got like eight or ten five, white five-gallon buckets strapped down on the back of the truck. And on the side of them, somebody had taken stencils and spray-painted hand sanitizer. I remember thinking, oh, that's terrible. So we get these out and put them in the shop, open the lid, and it was the most awful, like pungent, this stuff's going to kill you smell that you've ever smelled. And we seal them back up. They sit there to this day. We're like, we're not giving that to anybody. Because I'm fairly certain it would melt the skin off of your hands if you tried to use it. So, I mean, washing your hands, being hygienic is something that we, we absolutely can, um, we can relate to coming out of that type of world that we've been in. But in this case, the Pharisees, they weren't concerned about the hygiene of the men. Their concern centered around the disciples breaking Jewish tradition. This wouldn't have been just a quick hand washing where you sing happy birthday, happy birthday song twice uh, to make sure that it's thorough enough. This was a ceremonial washing. It was, it was a ceremony that was commanded to the Israelite priest that they would perform it before entering the holy places to offer sacrifices to God. And in the scripture, we don't see the disciples offering sacrifices to God. We see them just trying to grab a bite to eat as they're going on this journey with Jesus. But what had happened at this point in time is that over time, as time has passed from the time the law was given until, you know, right here in Mark chapter 7, uh, religious leaders of the day had begun to add more and more requirements to the law of God. And by doing this, they had caused many of their man-made regulations to actually exceed the requirements of the law that was given by God. And this happened because as that law was passed down, many rabbis would get it. They would add their own interpretation and application. And then they would pass down the written law along with what they had added as an, as an oral law. And they'd pass that down into tradition. And this happened over and over and over again as it got passed down to the point that the oral law was held in equally high, if not higher esteem than the written law from God. And uh, you might hear this referred to as a 
as a, a concept of fencing the laws, what, what, it's, what it's called. And what that is is where we use it to, we, we will fence the law, we'll make more laws, the Jews would do this, around the law of God to ensure that we never even got close to breaking the law of God. If you held the law of man, there was no way you could go further and break the law of God. And this was the idea. And, and the thing is, fencing in and of itself is not legalism, right? Listen to what um, R.C. Sproul says here on this topic of, of fencing and legalism. He says, there are many ways in which legalism raises its ugly head in the life of the people of God. But to bind people's conscience where God has left them free, to add human regulations to the law of God is the worst and most devastating form of legalism. So just for clarity's sake, I'm going to say it again. Fencing itself is not legalism. Sometimes, and I would venture to say oftentimes, fencing is actually wisdom, right? The, the most prevalent case of this that, that I've grown up with being a kid from the, you know, that grew up in Southern Baptist churches is the issue of, of alcohol. There has been a strict prohibition. I think they're coming back over the last five years or so. They've kind of pulled back from that. But there has, over the years, been a strict prohibition against the use of alcohol. If you were a member of a Southern Baptist church, this was actually in their um, in their document on, on what they believed. And, and while the use of alcohol isn't necessarily prohibited in the Bible, the Scripture does give us many serious warnings about the dangers it can pose if it's not used responsibly. So because of this, many Christians over the years have chosen not to use alcohol at all. That's why I say oftentimes fencing is wisdom. You heed the warning, you walk away and say, I don't even want to mess with that. Like I don't want to light the fuse on that. And here's the thing, if you maintain a prohibition on alcohol in your life because of personal conviction, God bless you, that's great. That's great. We support you in that. We love you. We want you to pursue that. If you're maintaining a prohibition on alcohol in your life because of a tendency toward addiction or any other problem that alcohol might bring about, that's wisdom. I support you. I love you. I want you to do that. But here's where something, here's where the, the concept of fencing turns into legalism is when we begin to take those extra biblical things and use them to condemn our brothers and sisters. That's legalism. And that's what we're seeing here with the Pharisees and the scribes in this moment as they're accusing the disciples. Jesus addresses this in verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, well did, Isaiah, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus keeps with his, um, his tradition of pulling out a hammer and smacking these guys on the head every time he, he runs into one of these things. And I, I think about... A lot of times I think about the disciples, like what, what were they thinking in these moments? Like what was going through their mind? I think in our mind we romanticize it a bit and we think that they already know that they are somehow attached to Jesus and all. The, and they're like cheering as he like takes down the religious leaders of the day. But we forget that these are just regular Jewish men. They would see these Pharisees, they would see these scribes as very powerful men, leaders of the day. So this is a bit of a shock when Jesus begins to address them in this way for the disciples. I got to think it's a lot like all of us. We have that one friend and we hate going to restaurants with this friend. We love them, but we hate going to restaurants with them because something's going to go wrong and they're going to say something that embarrasses us in the restaurant. Like I feel like the disciples probably probably operated out of more out of that space than in, you know, cheering and, and loving what it was Jesus was saying to them. He, he looks these guys in the eyes and he calls them hypocrites. 
He says their hearts are far from God, that their worship is in vain. And all of that is because they have chosen to leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. These are very, very heavy accusations, and we see Jesus laying them here. He continues on in verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So at this point, Jesus has gone from calling them hypocrites and now he's escalated the discussion. He's taken it to the next level. They're, they're not only hypocrites at this point, but they're hypocrites who practice legalism by adding to the word of God, but they also use their man-made laws to circumvent the law of God. And that's what Jesus is, is pointing out here. He holds up for them the fifth commandment given to the Jews by Moses, Deuteronomy 5 Verse 16, it says this, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And every parent in the room says, Amen, right? I, my dad used to read that to me and go, Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long, because if you don't, you're going to get killed. That's what he'd say. I'm going to kill you if you don't do that. And rightfully so, right, because I was, I was a bit of a handful there for, at times. But this was a commandment that was given to them and was taken very seriously in their culture. It was taken very seriously by the Jews, and the children were obliged to adhere to this law, whether they wanted to or not. It was considered their duty. It was not something that you could just opt out of. And one of the most common ways to honor your father and mother in their culture was demonstrated through children supporting their parents financially when they became too old to work and care for themselves. Remember, there's no pension plans, right? There's no 401k. There's no stock market to invest in to ensure that when you're older and you either can't work, you don't want to work anymore, that you have enough money to take care of yourself. Their retirement plans were their children. And some of them probably had better retirement plans than others. You know, good kid, man, I'm going to be all right. This guy over here, not really sure. I probably need to work till I can't walk. One way or another, this was their plan, and this was what God had given them and commanded them to do in order to take care of their parents. But what the Pharisees had done here through this tradition of Corban was given themselves the authority to release a child from the responsibility of reporting their parents that the child would pledge their finances as an offering or a gift to the temple upon their death. So this meant that all the personal wealth of the child stayed with the child to be used in whatever way they saw fit as long as they said, when I die, everything I have goes to the temple. And when it would come to, you know, paying the mother and the father or taking care of the mother and the father, the answer would be, sorry, the money I had for you, mom, the money I had for you, dad, is Corbin. So I can't give it to you. I can't support you. And this was created by the Pharisees, by the leaders of the day to bring money into the temple. Now, here's the thing. It was beneficial to the temple. It was beneficial to their ministry there. So the root of Corbin could be considered to have been planted in a good soil, right? Like what we, what's bad about giving funds to the church that are handled wisely and utilized for ministry? 
I can see how this may have begun out of something that was good, but whatever was good in the idea was lost once it began to be used to create an alternative to honoring God by keeping his commandments. And this is what Jesus is saying to them. And that's the case with almost all legalism that we encounter, that we might participate in, that we might see almost all of that legalism begins with noble purpose. It begins with a good, noble purpose. And it's a tightening of the boundaries given to us by God to avoid sin altogether, but quickly can become a stumbling block when we disregard the law of God and apply the laws of man to one another. We use these laws of man to condemn one another. At that point, it's no longer a good thing. It has walked into the realm of legalism. So Jesus ends verse 13 with an indication that this Corbin example he gives them was not the only example of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. He says to them, and many such things you do. So he indicates this is just one thing that I'm pulling out and addressing. There's many more. There's many more than this. And this is why you guys are hypocrites. This is why you guys are condemned. This is why you're doing the things that you're doing to me. And then he's about to get into an even bigger issue with the Pharisees. He's about to get into exposing the reason why this level of hypocrisy was so common with them, why it was happening so often. Jesus gets into what we would call the root cause of what's going on with them. Look at verses 14 and 15. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. So remember, at the end of chapter 6, these crowds had come around Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 7, the only thing we see addressed is that the Pharisees and the scribes are there. The crowds were still there. They had backed away. They had seen what had gone on here. They had seen this interaction. And when he gets to this point where he rebukes them and corrects them on this, this idea of Corbin, he then calls the crowds back in, and Scripture tells us he starts teaching again immediately. He starts teaching on the back end of this. And they've been there the whole time. Jesus goes on after seeing this to explain to them the problem is in the hearts of the Pharisees and that it's a much bigger issue than just the omission of ceremonial washing before a meal, right? When when we see this this biblical, we talk a lot about the heart in the church, a lot. And and I try to be careful to stop on these things that could be Christianese to some people and explain that we're talking about the heart, Jesus is talking about the heart, we're singing about the heart up here this morning. And the reality is when the believer references the heart of the believer, we're talking about the emotions, mind, and will of that person. Everything that is inside of you is referenced when we're talking about the heart of a believer, and Jesus is saying their hearts, their hearts are in bad shape because the core of their problem is not their legalism, it's not their hypocrisy, it's not their idolatry. The core of their problem is that they have a defiled heart. They have a heart that is evil. And he goes into more detail when he explains it further to the disciples in verses 17 and 18. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. So still, court talked about this last week also, despite what the disciples have seen. 
despite what Jesus has taught to this point, they still lack understanding. They still don't really grasp what's going on around them, and they couldn't get this either. They couldn't get all the pieces of the puzzle to fit together. But here's the thing that I think is admirable about them. Despite what they're doing being countercultural, despite what they're doing probably at times being, being maddening because they don't understand what's going on, they stick with it. They continue to go. They stick with it. They stuck with Jesus, and piece by piece, they're starting to see what's going on around them. And I love that, that Mark put a note in here for the reader so this point wouldn't be missed. In the parentheses, right in the middle of this, he just makes sure everybody understands when Jesus said this, you know, thus he declared all foods clean. He wants us to know that, to understand the Jewish tradition, just like we're talking with the Corban, with the, with the washing of the hands, Jewish tradition made many foods unclean for them to eat, made many foods defiling for their bodies. And Jesus is telling them that eating the wrong foods is not going to make you unclean because it's the heart and not the stomach that is the issue. Your stomach will eventually get rid of whatever you ate, but something much greater is necessary to get rid of the rot in your heart. This is the message of Jesus in Mark 7. This is the message of Jesus to the disciples, to the onlookers, to the Pharisees and the scribes. And then to drive that point home even more, he gives a list of some of the things in man's heart that defile him. Verses 20 through 23. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covering wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within. And they defile a person. One of the commentaries that, that I was using when I was preparing for this got to this particular verse and, and referred to this list as being meant to bring horrifying self-knowledge. And when I first read that, I kind of chuckled. I thought, man, that's, that's intense, horrifying self-knowledge. And then I started reading through it again and realized how many of those things that Jesus mentioned actually apply to me apply to, to the evil that oftentimes will rear its ugly head in my heart. And, and it went from being funny to being true and then being weighty. And if you're honest with yourself, for a second, you'll know that's true about you also, just like it's true about me. There's this thing that's broken inside of us that, that we can't always get these things right. But yet Jesus has come and he's, he's, he's pointing this out. He wants them to know he wants us to know. Scripture speaks all over about the condition of the human heart. I pulled out a couple that are some of the more well-known verses. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Scripture says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. You see, the issue of the heart isn't just something that the Pharisees contended with way back then and now that's past. No, the condition of a defiled heart is something we must grapple with every day. Those of us who, who know Christ, those of us who don't grapple with this defiled heart every day. And here's the thing, no matter how different each one of us may be, there is one thing that we all, at the very least, there's one thing that we all have in common, and it's that we were born with that heart that is predisposed to sin, right? We were all born with that heart that is, is turned away 
from God and requires his intervention to be turned back to him. I know we say this a lot, but I think it's, it's an important point. You don't have to teach babies to do these things. You don't have to teach babies to hit and bite. And the big one, you don't have to teach them to be selfish. You know how much time we spend as parents teaching our children to share? Sometimes we do that well, well into their life. I was in my 20s. My mom was still trying to teach me how to share right, you know, with the people that are around me. We do this all the time. It just seems to be in there innately. And hopefully for us, as we get older, our sinful tendencies look less like hitting and biting, hopefully, and more like that list that Jesus gives us in verses 21 through 29, or 21 through 22. Sorry, it begins to look more like these things that we, we can't avoid, and no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we pursue, we always find ourselves back in this snare of sin. And it's important for us as believers that we understand why it is that that happens, because if you don't understand the root cause for the condition, you'll never understand what the cure is, right? You'll never understand what the cure is. Because you don't understand that it's just innately built into you and apart from a miraculous move of the spirit and the blood of Christ being poured out upon you, you can't do it. You can't be good enough to overcome it. And, and the question that we get to when we start talking about that is, then what is it that we're supposed to do? What are we to do with this information? And if you're wired like me, what you want is a procedure or a formula that says plug this in here and do this, press this button and bam, what you want is going to come out on the other side. The reality is, the answer is, there's nothing we can do on our own to change our own situation. It is our situation. It's what we're facing. The only way we can be saved from this helpless condition is by crying out to Jesus for salvation and allowing him to take control. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophet, he's speaking to Jewish exiles in Babylon, and he's giving them a promise on behalf of God. Look at this. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What scripture teaches us is that through Christ we are given a new heart to replace the defiled one that we've had since birth. Through Christ we receive the Holy Spirit to guide us away from sin and into the presence of the Lord. And through Christ we are saved and will be united with him for eternity. Nothing that we've done to earn it, to deserve it, it has all come through him. And here's the best part about this. The best part about this is that when that happens, when we receive those things from Christ and we become a part of the church, God weaves us into a new family. He weaves us into a new family, and he's given us this family to walk with us through the highest of highs in our lives and the lowest of lows in our life. And if we're honest with one another, we realize that even though we've been given a new heart, we still don't get things right, and we can look around the room to other people who say, yeah, me either. The most damaging thing that we do is act like we get it right. It's the most damaging habit that we have. Because it, it dashes the hope of those who look and say, well, you know, those guys have it figured out. I might as well just move along. I'm never going to get there. 
Yeah, stop doing that. Stop. Get some family. Get some friends. Be honest with them. Because we have to walk this thing together because here's the reality. The truth of the situation is even at the moment of salvation, the, the moment you cry out to Christ, you are saved, you are his, you cannot be taken away, but the reality is the growth and the sanctification of your heart is a process. It is a process. The Holy Spirit works that in you, and the idea is that you are better now than you were then. I am, I am so far from perfect, so incredibly far from anything that even resembles perfect, but if you knew me 15 years ago, it's worse, significantly worse, and that's not because I grew up and matured. I was old back then. I was old enough to know better. It's because the Holy Spirit has interacted with me and my heart was made new and through his process, he is making me like Christ. And that work will be completed one day, whether it's tomorrow when I, you know, if something were to happen or maybe it's when I'm 90 years old and I pass away, that work will complete when I see my Savior face to face. And we all need to understand we're working this together. Like we're on the way. That's why we do this. That's why we come here every week and we open this, this book and we talk about it. If we didn't have any room to grow, we wouldn't need to do what we're doing right now. We wouldn't need any more of this stuff. Like why? Why do we need some guy to stand up here and imperfectly tell me what this says? I can read. We need it because we're on a journey, man. We're doing it together. We're on our way to becoming all that Christ has made us to be. We need other people to battle beside us. And God has been gracious to give us that through the church. Stay in the game. Stay Stay connected. Stay with your people. Stay with your pocket of people that God has given you to do that with you. I'm going to begin closing with this, and, and I want to close with, with one question that I want all of us to, to think about and, and kind of assess. I mean, the question I want to ask this morning is, how is your heart? How is your heart right now? Whether you've a, been a believer for 50 years or whether you accepted the Lord as your Savior yesterday, how's your heart? Do you find that your heart identifies more with the Pharisees in this story than maybe it probably should, or, or maybe you identify with the disciples and that you hear the words of Jesus through the scripture, but you just can't make it make sense. Or maybe probably the one that, that I am most bent toward is that identifying with the list of sins that Jesus gives us here in verses 21 and 22 and, and understanding that we do have this defiled heart. We have a home with a beautiful yard that is gutted on the inside. And we think we're okay because the people that drive by say the grass looks like a carpet. Let the Lord do the work in your heart that needs to be done this morning. And one of the, if you're trying to assess right now, man, where am I on this scale? One of the best ways to gauge the condition of your heart is by examining your worship. And I'm not talking about your everything I do is worship, worship. Like I go to work and work really hard, so I'm, I'm worshiping well there. I'm talking about the worship that takes place in this place every week when we sing together. Like when Brendan comes up here and, and these guys and they play, they play this music and, and you look at yourself and say, am I engaging? Am I a part of this? Is it special to me? Does it mean something? Or do I just want to get out of here because I don't like it? Your heart does a couple of things in those moments. It either, it either cries out and is excited and it is engaged because it knows 
that you're singing about a Savior and every word on that screen is about what he has done for you and that brings an immense joy or your heart turns away and shrinks because it's being exposed and you have the shame of sin hanging in with you there. My answer for you today, my, my, my encouragement is that no matter where you are on that spectrum, from the most seasoned, mature believer all the way to the one who's here this morning that's never called upon salvation, gauge your heart, test your heart, and then cry on Jesus. Cry out to Jesus because he stands ready today to meet you right where you are, no matter the condition of your heart. Let me pray for us, and I'm going to turn it over to, to Brendan. Lord, we thank you that you, you take the imperfect, Lord, and you make it perfect. God, we thank you that you have, you've seen fit to save us from our helpless state. God, you have brought us into relationship with you, God, and your promises are good and they're true. And we can believe them. We can hang on to them. God, we know that the work that you've started in us is, is not a finished work, but it is a work that you intend to finish. And I thank you for that. I thank you for that truth. I pray that those that don't have a good grasp on that, God, that they would get it this morning, that by your Holy Spirit, God, you would, you would cement that truth in their heart. God, I pray for those under the sound of my voice that, that don't know you, that have not accepted you, whose hearts are far from you, that may not even realize the condition of their heart this morning because it's always just been that for them. God, I pray that you would, you would impact those lives. God, you would intersect those lives and you would save people even this morning. You'd save people even now, God. Father, we love you. We thank you for all you've given us and the opportunity to be here together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.